Hey everybody, welcome back to Triple D Podcast, Dads of Daughters with Disorders. This episode is titled Year One, and in this episode I'm going to take you through Emlyn's first year of life, or at least most of what I remember from it. Um, Most of it has to do with hospital visits, with learning about her disorder some more, with meeting with doctors, with with medications, and, and new diets, and just life. So I'm glad you're back. Again, I hope this connects with you and helps you to see urea cycles and any, really any disorder a family member might have in a different light and to let you know that there's somebody else who's been through at least something similar to what you have. And if you need someone to listen, to talk to, I hope you reach out. In Emlyn's first year of life, after that first hospitalization, she was on average in the hospital once a month for that first year of her life. And each one of those hospital stays was at least three, sometimes five days. So between three to five days, we were there. So what does, what does that mean? Why, why were we in the hospital so much, you might ask? What, what was happening in the hospital? Was it the same every time? What different and my psycho for putting my child in the hospital once a month i i actually am just a sadist and i wanted to see her suffer joking please i'm not a sadist um some of the things that i'm gonna i'm gonna go through and discuss with you will be you know like what was this toll what was what is the toll that that takes on a family on parents on the child itself mentally physically emotionally even financially that that took a toll on us that year And it just, it was hard. Getting back to that, what does this mean? First question, you know, rhetorical question. So a hospital visit with Emlyn typically was because we started to see signs of, early signs of hyperemlinemic episodes. A fancy word just means hormonia is rising or is on the rise. And those signs include lethargy, crankiness, irritability, not eating, not drinking, no wet or poopy diapers for hours because she's not eating or drinking. Each one of those, we she got sick with something and we started to see signs and symptoms and every time, Jessica and I, we didn't just rush to the ER when the first time something happened, but every one of these hospital stays that we had, we first called her genetics team and spoke with them. We told them everything that had been going on what we thought she was sick with or her symptoms, how much formula she had or hadn't had that day, whether she kept her medication down, all these different things. And then based on their judgment and confirm it, that confirmed what we thought we should do, we would pack a bag, find a family member to take our beautiful Lucy, and we would take her to the hospital. And there we would pull out our fast pass through the er i guess if you will if fast pass is appropriate and we would get into an er room and they would come in and prick her draw labs poke her with two ivs and start fluids going and then the majority of the time we would get put in the rtu unit and i'm not sure what's called what it would be called at other hospitals around the country or around the world but at primary children's it stands for the rapid treatment unit and they put you in one of those after the ER because they think they can get you out in just a, a couple, three days. Not put you up on a floor that's kind of more of an extended time where you might be there for a week or two or however long. So that was always encouraging um, that 
we were always admitted into the RTU, except that very first time. After that, we were always admitted to the RTU, and the the nurses and the staff, hospital staff there were great. We always had, you know, the, the doctors and the, the nurses making their rounds, and they'd come in and talk to us, and it was just kind of funny because there were multiple times where they would come in and we were teaching them about arginosuccinic aciduria, lyase syndrome, about what it meant, about why we were in the hospital and why a normal kid, yeah, you're right, doc, we wouldn't be here for my oldest child if she had these same symptoms. We'd be home giving her warm baths, snuggling her in blankets, giving her some medicine and some chicken noodle soup. But with ASA, we're here, we're in the hospital. The The toll that this this started to take on on me especially and my wife it was it was like that same hospital experience over and over and over it was like hey you didn't learn it well enough the first time that's that's how i felt like god was like hey you didn't learn how horrible and, and and miserable and worthless you were so here's another chance which i'm sure most people would would try and tell me that i've i've got the wrong viewpoint and that that's not how things work and and maybe they're right but that's how I felt and that's how I still feel to this day is that six years later is that oh you didn't learn your lesson there Mikey try it again you're not depressed enough you're not feeling worthless enough try it again try it again for 12 months actually it was almost beyond that but that made everything worse everything worse the, the anger Depression, my anxiety, the, the hopelessness, the sense of loss, the sense of just not knowing who the hell I was anymore. It just compounded it mentally and physically. As as I said last episode, if you listen, I continued to eat because it, it gave me small comfort. I thought I started ballooning up in weight and started to get extremely unhealthy and become obese and in those moments when I was munching on junk food, and my those dorphins, that hit of dopamine, whatever is released from, I'm not a health person, I don't know, whatever is released from those cravings that you give into made me feel good. And by that last time we were in the hospital, I'm sure I had gained a serious amount of weight, but I was still doing that because it was about the only thing that helped me feel good for a long time. Um, emotionally... Obviously, I've spoken a little bit about the emotional toll that that had on me. And financially, hospital food's not cheap. Gas, gas money's not, not cheap at the time. It wasn't, still not. We, uh, you know, I would, there was times where because I'm working a job, well, I can't lose my job just because my daughter's in the hospital. So I would, you know, go to work, stop by whoever's house was had Lucy, if possible, or I'd meet up with them at one point to check on her every day or every other day and make sure she's okay, doing okay. We called her, and and I'd drive back to the hospital and shower and spend the night there with Jessica and Emily and then get up the next morning and go to work. Or if I had a work that was okay with it, I would take days off, and a lot of those times, the days off were, were unpaid. I probably shouldn't have done it. I probably should have kept working through it but being a dad being me at least I had to be there for every one of those I had to know she was okay I had to ask questions I had to pick the doctor's brain if possible and question why this was happening and how I could prevent it from happening in the future 
again. I'm a fixer. That's what I do. With most of these these hospital stays, we we had labs every two hours. You know that heel prick, and that's that's just hard. Being a man, being a dad, being a protector. You're laying in your bed that's meant for one person. You're snuggling your wife on this fold-out couch that's big enough for her. And they come in for the 18th time in the middle of the night, poke your child, and they're trying to put a new IV in because she's she's kinked the hose in her sleep or whatever is going on. And at the same time, they're, they're doing another blood draw and your daughter is screaming. And you know she wants you to fix it, to make it stop. And you can't. You can't stop the blood draws. You can't stop them from putting the IV back in or changing the position of it so that it gets this life-saving medication into her. And she is screaming and crying, begging you to make it stop. If you have never spent time with a child in the hospital, you don't know what it's like, and I pray you never have to. But if you do, and I hope it was rarely, if ever, I want you to to remember that. Just take a minute. Remember that feeling, what was going through your mind when your child was was in the hospital with a broken arm overnight or was the, they got dehydrated from the flu, I don't, whatever it could be. All I know hospital visits for are for Emlyn. Lucy's never been in the hospital. She's been in the ER once or twice. She had a cement goose fall on her leg, you know, kind of stupid stuff that accidents, the kids, that happen all the time. But a hospital stay. All that's in my mind that, that coincides with a hospital stay is Emmy. For an EEG with diodes glued to her head. For having influenza, para-influenza A and, and getting so sick in about 20 minutes that I thought she was going to die and couldn't get her to the hospital fast enough. If you have never experienced that, I hope you thank your lucky stars every day. Because feeling that feeling of helplessness... It brings tears to my eyes still thinking about it. And at the time when the doctors were doing that, I'm over here holding my baby down because the nurse can't get the IV back in because she's screaming and flailing so hard. Tears are pouring down my face. So if you've never had experience it and you want to know what it's like, that is hell. To me, whether you believe in God or not, whether you believe in heaven or hell, whether you believe it doesn't matter to me. But if you want to know what hell is like, You need to experience that. You holding your baby down and holding them still while they are screaming bloody murder for you to save them while an inexperienced nurse pokes an IV into your daughter's leg or foot or hand or arm or neck or wherever it is multiple times because it needed to be moved. That is hell. You're helpless, utterly and completely helpless. You know that you're a big, strong man. You could punch this nurse out and you're... hug your daughter and and she would stop crying but you can't do that for one you'd go to jail because you just punched a lady in the face that's not okay for two if you stop them from hurting your daughter she will die they are the only thing keeping her alive you have to help them hurt your daughter to save her but by god don't let anybody know that you're crying you're the man you can't be weak you can't cry you can't let your wife or child see or the doctor staff see that you're crying every time they poke her with an IV. Every time they come in every two hours and draw labs and she cries for 30 seconds and falls back to sleep because she's so damn used to it by the time she's six months old. It doesn't even bug her anymore. You can't cry. You're a tough guy. You just got to swallow that. You're the man. You can't show weakness 
to your wife, to those doctor staff who are going to think less of you. I know it's very rare in the medical community for them to think less of a mother or father who come to tears when you go through what we have gone through. That's how it felt being me. At every doctor's, every hospital visit we went to. Because that's the other thing. Not only were we in the hospital for these extended stays, almost on an average once a month, she was also having monthly or quarterly, I can't remember exactly, checkups with her genetics team. And there we would go and we'd meet, they'd check her, we'd talk about how we're doing. We'd talk about if we have any questions or what's going on. Is she acting like she's having an hyperammonemic episode? And then we'd go down and get labs done. And they'd poke her and make her scream and bleed and cry. And once again, don't let anybody see. It's like that line from the first Frozen. I'm a dad of daughters. Yes, I watch and love Disney movies. And yes, Frozen is great. But when you're a dad of a daughter of with a disorder and you're in the hospital, all you do is conceal, don't feel, don't let them know. Just like Elsa. There, I said it. You can make fun of me if you want. Now, the next, the next question that I've asked myself is how, do, how did we get back to normal every time? Looking back at it, I mean, you're in the hospital. You're dealing with this trauma. That's what it is. It's a trauma. Anybody who tells you differently is an asshole because this is a trauma. When you're helping pin your child down so they can stick a three-inch needle inside of her so that her IV, I don't know how big the needle is, so they stab her once again for the 15th time that day, it's traumatic. And you can have PTSD from it and don't let anybody tell you differently. So how do we get back to normal? I don't know. You know, I, I kind of wrote the outline for this episode a few, I don't know, last week, a few days ago. And I, I've, th- I've thought about this, this question, this part of it, multiple times. And I don't know that I've ever really gotten back to normal. I mean, how do you? You're literally helping the doctor staff save your child's life by torturing your child. You don't go back to normal. I got sick of hearing the, you know, with the, the COVID of 2020, the pandemic. Oh, this is the new normal. Well, for this, it really is. You find a new normal. You're never going to be the same man you were. You can't be because you were innocent before. You had never held a child down screaming and fighting with every ounce of her two-month-old strength to break free because she's in pain. I mean, never hid your tears from your wife and only cried in the shower until this has happened. At least this is how it was for me. So no, you don't go back to normal. Life doesn't return to normal. Yes, life goes on, but it's different. You know, there's a saying, and I, I don't know who said it. I don't know where it came from. They say no man ever steps in the same river twice. Because it's not the same river, and he's not the same man. And it it was like that, at least with me, every hospital visit. I knew what to expect. We knew it was going to be hard. And I did those same things. I hid my tears. I held my daughter and cried my eyes out while the hospital staff stabbed her for the 30,000th time in 12 months. But I wasn't the same man as I had been. That Saturday, I got a phone call when Emma's three days old. I'm a different man. So, you don't get back to normal, but that's how life moves forward. You, be, you change, you adapt, you survive, you find a way to cope with it. And I urge you, if you are just finding out the results of your child, or finding out that 
your child has a urea cycle disorder, I urge you to not follow some of the things I did. Don't eat yourself into obesity because it makes you feel good for a little bit. Don't become addicted to pornography and, and other stimulants because it makes you feel good for a little bit. It's not worth it. It causes more problems down the road. Health problems, relationship problems, more mental problems. But find a way to cope with it. Whether that's picking up a new hobby, whether that's learning how to becoming a chef to cook low-protein meals for your child, it, it doesn't matter. Find something productive that you can be passionate about and throw yourself into it because it'll save you. A lot of heartache and a lot of pain down the road. Well, nowadays, I don't cope with, with pornography. I don't cope with eating myself to death. I'm not the healthiest guy in the world. I do. I do like my junk food. My wife, Jessica, is an amazing baker, and she cooks way too good bakes. Excuse me. It's not cooking. It's baking. Way too delicious of treats. So I have my, my issues there, but I don't do it to relieve stress and anxiety anymore. I think for me right now, I cope just by, some days, it's literally just by putting one foot in front of the other. By getting out of bed when I feel like the world is so heavy on my shoulders, I can't breathe. But I know I've got to get up because I have to make her medicine. Because if I don't, she won't be okay. And other days, it's easy to get up. Other days, I'm up and I exercise in the morning and I go to work and I, I kick ass at work. And then I come home and I'm the, the wrestling dad and we're out playing fetch with the dog and we're wrestling and we're telling jokes and we're having fun. And the next day, the anger that is so huge inside of me comes out. And I feel like all I do is apologize to the people closest to me because I am. To say that I am biting people's heads off is to put it lightly. And that includes everyone. My, my kids, my wife, people at work, friends, people I meet in the street, flipping somebody off while I'm driving down the road. It comes out in an uncontrollable rage. And on those days, I try to isolate myself away from people as much as possible. Sometimes good music helps. Listening to a song I can really get into. I found for me, physical activity, whether it's at work, using a 15-pound sledge on a piece of equipment, or carrying super heavy uh, blades or tracks for a skid steer or loader tires or whatever helps being physical helps me and it's not for everybody you don't have to be like me but find what works for you life is hard being a dad of a daughter with a disorder is harder so you've got to find a way to cope and the earlier you find it and the more passionate you can be about it the better off you'll be in this first year with Emily's disorder like I mentioned previously in the last episode I believe she when she was born she was the only one in Utah and six surrounding states with her disorder we scoured the internet we connected with people on Facebook from different countries from other states with the same disorder with we met a, a lady who started a foundation in California who does fundraisers every year to help try and find cures for urea cycle disorders and we connected very well with her in that first year because Emily's born in February. And second year, we went out and drove out to California and rode our bikes in a bike race. To It's just a fundraiser to, to, to raise money, to raise awareness for urea cycle disorders. And for us in particular, for ASA, because obviously that's what Emily has. So, but we, we were worried that everyone... We knew Emily wasn't going to be the only one for long who was in Utah with this disorder. Jessica, 
she either heard from Emlyn's team or told them before we had heard. Either way, it's it doesn't matter. But we, we knew that it was coming, so we, we told them that they were welcome to share our contact information with anyone whose child is born with a UCD, especially ASA in Utah. And they did. We've met several families and formed friendships, and we have... I have failed some of these other fathers because I haven't been there for them. Um, But we have made friendships, and I think about them often. I'm not great at at reaching out and letting them know I think about them or checking in to make sure they're okay. Jessica's much better at that than I am. I think it's mostly because, like I said, I don't don't talk about this very much. Really, the only reason why I talk about it now is because I assume no one's going to listen except maybe Jessica, and that's okay. Because it, it helps me. So, with this, coming to the conclusion of this episode, I hope you know what it's like a little bit better to be a dad of a daughter with a disorder, to be part of the Triple D Club, to be a dad of a family member with a urea cycle disorder, and, and what we go through that first year with the hospital visits, the learning about the diet and the protein, and trying to find a support system when there wasn't anything not that we knew about, not that we could find. So we made our own, tried to help others. At times we've done good at it, at times we we haven't. But thank you for listening. And I hope that this helps you to understand a little bit more of what it's like, like I said, to be a, a triple D dad.